0: Church family, um, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to continue to march through Romans chapter 5, and uh, I'm hoping to finish off Romans chapter 5 this morning in this wonderful section of Scripture, and I pray that it would be such an encouragement to you. So, as you're kind of getting yourself situated in Romans chapter 5, let me just begin by asking you a very simple question. Who are the two most influential people in the entire Bible? Just take a moment, think about that question. If you're at home and you're with your family, go ahead and share your answer with one another. Go ahead, just shout them out. The two most influential people in the Bible. And if you're by yourself, you can have a conversation with yourself right now. Just just say the names out loud. You got them? All right. Uh, You should, by the way, get at least 50% on this little pop quiz. You should know at least one of these individuals. The answer is Adam and Jesus. These are the two most influential people in all of the Scripture. Adam, you see, affects everyone in the entire Bible. There's not a single person here. There's not a single person in the universe who is not affected by Adam. Together, we as human beings are children of Adam and Eve. He is easily the most influential person in the Bible aside from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is by far the most influential person in the entire world and in the entire cosmos. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is an extended comparison and contrast between Jesus. And Adam, go back to to grade five for a minute. Remember those terms, compare and contrast? That's exactly what Paul is doing in the passage this morning. And, And this is, by the way, widely regarded as one of the most difficult and confusing passages of the Bible. But I think the basics are actually fairly simple and somewhat straightforward. So I want to give to you right now, right up front, the basic kind of point of the whole sermon and the whole thought process of the Apostle Paul right here. Here it is. Ready? The eternal destiny for every human being lies in one of two persons, either in Adam or in Christ. That's it. And Paul is going to compare and contrast these two individuals here in order to show us how great is the problem of sin, but how much greater is the provision of grace. And the whole point of this is ultimately to show us the absolute certainty and finality of our salvation found only in Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read it together. Paul begins by saying this, "'Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if Again, the main point here is that the eternal destiny of every human being lies in the actions of only two individuals. Humanity can be separated into two groups, those who are in Adam and in Christ. And at the end of the day, understanding this is going to allow you to see how much greater grace is than all of our sin. We're going to march through this text, and I want you to see first that as we look at Adam, what we see is the ruin of humanity in Adam. The ruin of humanity in Adam. Verses 12 through 14 show this, but specifically verse 12 unpacks this logical chain. Paul begins, by the way, this section by connecting us back to what he has just said in the previous section. Notice that word therefore, that that word therefore connects us back into what he said about us receiving reconciliation. Remember that? We are now at peace with God. We're no longer at war with God through Jesus Christ because of justification by faith. And now he says that he wants to essentially explain how this is possible. You see, that previous idea that justification can be through faith alone in Christ alone, it provokes some thoughts and some questions in our minds or at least it should. It should provoke this this first thought, how is it possible that one person's sacrifice could have brought such blessing to so many? And you see, in order to understand this, Paul wants to point us to an analogy between Adam and Christ, showing how the actions of one individual can truly affect the destiny of all. To understand our problem and our need and how Christ's redemption works, we need to first understand Adam and our relationship to Him. The Bible makes it clear that in Adam, we are all lost, and we see the ruin of humanity, the utter and total destruction of humanity in Adam. Look first at Adam the sinner, Adam the sinner in verse 12, again, we see this beautiful, logical chain that Paul presents to us. He, he thinks so clearly and so carefully about these things. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's a lot to unpack there. He's referring here back to the earliest chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. He's pointing us back, this one man, to Adam himself. And the first thing that I want you to see what Paul does here is this, he affirms the historicity of Adam and Eve, and he also affirms the historicity of the fall, the rebellion towards God. You see, for Paul, this isn't some kind of a a myth or poetic symbolism. As he reads the beginning of the Bible and he looks at Adam and Eve, he recognizes this as reality, as history. These individuals were real, living individuals. They were the first human beings that were created. Humanity didn't evolve and become human beings from some kind of an amoeba. No, they were created first. The fall is the term that we use to describe the event that took place in the Garden of Eden with the first human beings. I need you to remember, when we look back to the beginning of Scripture, before sin entered the picture, we are reminded that everything God created was good, and humanity is said to be very good. It is created perfect in the sense that it is the way God designed it to be and function. There was no sin in the world God had given Adam and Eve free reign in a beautiful, lush garden, but He had commanded them not to eat of one of those trees. He had made it very clear they had free reign of everything, but there's one thing they couldn't do. They couldn't touch from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if they did, they would surely die. God gave them a law in the Garden of Eden to drive them towards obedience What we know is that Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, who is later in Scripture understood to be Satan himself. Eve, tempted by Satan, took and ate the fruit, passed it on to Adam, who was standing right there by the way as she indulged in the the, the sweet fruit of the tree. And in that moment, Adam's one act of rebellion had devastating consequences for all of creation and particularly all of humanity. Death enters into human existence and reality. We need to pause for a minute and ask the question, what exactly is this death? Oftentimes, we have a very myopic or limited understanding of death, but biblically speaking, as we look at both this passage and at the, the passage in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, we get a greater understanding of this concept of death, a biblical understanding of death. So, I want to break this down to you. I think biblical death has four components, and I'll just roll through them quickly. First, notice this. Biblical death is Judicial. There is a legal aspect to this death. Remember, God gave law in the Garden of Eden. It's like this divine courtroom setting, in a sense, where Adam and Eve now stand before the great judge and are declared to be guilty, judicially speaking. Guilt, in biblical terms, is not a psychological sensation that a pharmacist or a therapist can just erase. It's not like you can simply yell into a pillow to erase the guilt you feel. Adam, in this moment, dies judicially bearing the stamp of guilt and shame of sin that he himself can never erase. It is that permanent mark of sin and the stain of guilt and shame, which is why, by the way, Adam and Eve instantly are ashamed of their nakedness. They try to hide from God. They know they stand guilty before the great judge. But secondly, notice this, biblical death is physical Oftentimes, this is where our mind goes. We want to define death merely as physical, especially in a secular understanding of death. Death is for sure a physical reality, but I want you to notice this in the story of Adam and Eve, the history of Adam and Eve, they do not die physically immediately. But what we see is that the process of death has begun. Decay and destruction and ruin has set into all parts of humanity. From the moment, by the way, a child is born, that child begins to die. Adam and Eve created, in one sense, to know immortality, becoming an instant mortal. Adam's body, made for health and vibrancy, now suffers destruction and deterioration. Physical death now becomes the reality for all of humanity. Third, notice this, biblical death is spiritual. And this is arguably the most significant aspect of death that the Bible points to. We are made, you see, as spiritual beings created for intimate communion and fellowship with God. This is all depicted in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walk in the very presence of God. They know Him in beautiful, intimate communion and fellowship. And in an instant, because of this rebellion, Adam and Eve are now sealed off from the Lord. They are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They are removed from the most intimate presence of God they could possibly know and experience. They're separated, alienated from God. Alienated and removed, separated, not listen like a like a sick patient in a hospital who's quarantined in another room, but they're separated by an infinite distance, a gap that is unbridgeable unbridgeable by human means. Fourth, biblical death is eternal, and this is tightly linked to the spiritual nature of death. What is sin? Sin at its core, as we've seen in chapters 1 through 3, is rebellion against the Creator. It is the de-godding of God. It is a failure to glorify and worship Him. And you see, Adam's sin is not finite, for it does not offend a finite person. It offends a holy and infinite God. In other words, Adam's sin, and ours by the way, is not fundamentally about us it's fundamentally about God. The fall represents the holistic, personal rejection of God by Adam and Eve. But I want you to get this. It's not just the rejection of God by Adam and Eve. According to Paul right here, get this, it is also the rejection and rebellion against God by all of humanity. Notice this secondly, Adam, our representative Paul says that in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, Adam's sin is not a normal sin here, it's the sin of the head of the human race. Adam was, as many theologians call him, a covenantal head. God has made humanity so that they always have a leader or a king, and Adam was this leader or king representing the entire human race, and when he sinned, the whole human race sinned in him. Both Adam and Eve, consider this, this is evidenced, by the way, in the garden itself. Both Adam and Eve transgressed the law. In fact, we know this that Eve, technically speaking, transgressed the law first. But yet we see then God turn immediately and hold who responsible? Adam. The guilt falls at Adam's feet because he was the designated leader of the human race. He was the one God had given to protect Eve, to guide Eve, to provide for Eve. And here he is standing by watching her fall headlong into sin. And God turns to him and says, Adam, you were the one who was to represent all of humanity. It's your sin that the human race will now suffer for. It's kind of like uh, the father who is, biblically speaking, the head of the home. They bear a unique responsibility and accountability before God for the entire family. Or like a pastor or elder in the church bears a unique accountability and responsibility for the entire church family. And I understand this is a somewhat difficult concept for us to grasp in our individualistic Western mindset and way of thinking. We're a me, me, me kind of centered culture. And this idea here of corporate solidarity is very foreign to us. Let me give you a biblical illustration, though, of this kind of representation that I think we understand. Let me remind you of the story of David and Goliath. Remember David and Goliath and the battle between the Philistines and Israel, and, and you know, the battle lines are drawn, but all of a sudden, one representative figure steps forward for all the Philistines, Goliath. And the call is that if anybody can defeat me Basically, you go free, we get punished, and David steps up and he says, I will represent the people of God, I will represent Israel. And here's the reality in this situation whatever happens to Goliath happens to the rest of the Philistines, he's their representative. Whatever happens to David, whether it be victory or defeat, happens to the rest of the nation of Israel. All of their stock, everything is placed upon one individual. If you can grasp that, you can grasp what Paul is saying here about the human race. Even more so than David and Goliath, the guilt of the fall of the human race falls on the one who was the representative of the human race. And as our representative, Adam sinned. This is what Paul says, and we all died. Verse 12, so all died. We all sinned, so we all die. Is that what Paul's saying? We die then because we sin. almost kind of uh, in the same way that, that Adam sinned? No, that's not what he's saying here. All sinned doesn't mean we simply follow in the footsteps of Adam, though we all do follow in his footsteps. It means that in Adam, everyone was reckoned or counted a sinner. When he sinned, we were all counted sinners after him. Why? Why? Because he was our representative, he was the representative of all humanity. And in verse 13 and 14, Paul is wanting to prove this statement, this premise. So he goes on to say this, that for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. In other words, what he's saying is this. If you just, you you look at, when he says law here, he's talking about the Mosaic law given by Moses. And so he says, listen, Moses came along hundreds of years after Adam and Eve. But what we see taking place between Adam and Moses is constant sin and constant death. Just read the book of Genesis. But he's saying, you can't be held accountable for sin if there's no law that's been given. And yet, notice what he says in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of Of the one who was to come. See, what exactly is he saying? He's saying essentially this that if it was only that death passed on to all people because of their own individual sins, by the way, there would be no need to explain this in any way. If it was clear that we died because of our own sins, Paul wouldn't have to elaborate. But this statement is so extraordinary that Paul wants to clarify. He's showing that sin is not sin against the Mosaic Law, death reigned before the Mosaic Law was instituted. But people died and were judged long before the Mosaic Law. The law simply makes our sin clear and turns our sin into trespasses. It's so important to understand this concept. Man was sinning, but sin is different than a trespass. I've used this illustration before. It would be like if I had a a cookie sitting up here, and I walked away, and uh, one of our worship team came up here and grabbed the cookie, took it, and, and ate it. Uh, Was that wrong? Was that sin? Yes, they stole my cookie. But if I put a sign up here saying, this is Ian's cookie, do not eat, consequences to follow… And then they walked up here, read the sign, and ate the cookie. Listen, instantly, their sin, which was somewhat ignorant and uninformed, because they maybe could say, I wasn't sure, I didn't know. Now they read the sign, and they know instantly that what they're doing is wrong and sinful. You see what the law does? The law simply elevates our sin and turns it into a trespass, a knowing sin, a willful sin. But prior to the law, sin and death still reigned. So how do we make sense of it? They they didn't have the law, yet they're suffering and dying and being judged. How is this possible if they don't have the law yet? Well, John Stoss says it like this, there can only be one explanation. All died because all sinned in and through Adam, the representative or federal head of the human race. In other words, they're suffering and dying because Adam disobeyed the law before the law of Moses was ever even instituted. It's his transgressions. And that's, by the way, what the context of this passion is going to go on. passage is going to go on to say. In 15 through19, five times in these verses, once in every verse, Paul states that the trespass or disobedience of one man brought death, judgment and condemnation to all men. The language varies slightly from verse to verse, but the meaning is the same. Verse 15, by the way, clinches the matter. Notice what it says. The many died by the trespass of the one man. Adam knew the law. He was told the law, and he disobeyed and disregarded the law of God. And as a result of the one man's trespass, universal death creeps in for all humanity. Quickly, what does this mean? What does this mean? Let me give you a few things that it means. The first is this, that no one is born good. No one is born good, contrary to what many in the world, and some even in the church, have tried to argue throughout the years. Man is not born good. People are not born innocent. We don't become a sinner because we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. We have a human nature that is defiled and corrupt and ruined by sin. This is what theologians call total depravity. Secondly, here's what else this means, the world is tragically broken, and we Christians have an answer as to why suffering and evil actually exist in the world. It is attributed right here to one man's individual sin… This, by the way, helps us understand why, why children in this world suffer or who are, who, who are babies who die in the womb or when they're born, stillborn. It under, helps us understand how, how does this happen in a world like this because our world is deeply broken and ruined by sin. You see, we can look at a, a child who dies in infancy and we can ask the question, like, what did they do to deserve this? And the biblical answer is they didn't do anything to deserve it. They are suffering because of their father's sin, their representative sins, Adam's sin. Third, here's what this means to us as well. It means one man's actions can determine the destiny for all we all actually sinned in Adam. That's what he's saying here. And if we object, and I know many are inclined to do this, like, I I don't like this. That doesn't seem fair to me. We should remember, listen, that if God had put each of us in Adam's place individually, here's the reality, we would have done the exact same thing as him. None of us would have fared any differently. But more important. Our solidarity with Adam not only condemns us through one man, but it actually, listen, this is the good news. It makes possible our salvation through one man. This is what Paul is driving at. This is why Paul points in verse 14 to Adam, and he says here that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now, when you hear the word type, don't think of a kind, like a different type of apple, like a different kind of apple. That's not what he means. Type here is supposed to be understood as a pattern or a picture that is pointing to a greater reality. It's a picture of something that will be fulfilled in a greater way in something or someone else. And here what we see is that he is pointing, Adam is, to a, another Adam, a second Adam, a greater Adam, Jesus Christ, the Savior and representative of a new humanity recreated by God Himself. You see, the ruin of humanity, as as Paul lays this out for us in Adam, it points us ultimately to this second point here, the reign of humanity in Christ. And that's how Paul begins to unpack this section in verse 15 through 21. Adam, in essence, Paul is saying, is similar to Jesus in a way, but here what we need to see is this. It's not so much the ways that they're similar, but the ways that they are different, that matter most. Adam was the ruiner of humanity, but notice what he points to here, here we see that Christ is the savior of humanity. Verse 15 through 17 lays this out. And I want you to notice, by the way, if you're just to go through this and mark your Bible, I would encourage you to do this afterwards. I want you to mark the words, free gra- gift, grace, and abounded. And just listen to how many times they come up. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul wants you to see something here. He wants you to see, listen, that though sin was was great, it was tragic, it ruined humanity. When we look at Jesus Christ, when we look at the gospel, we see that the grace of God is even greater. It's more powerful. It is abounding in greater ways than sin ever has and ever did. Christ, the Savior, The saving of humanity is characterized by one word here, grace, 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 and it is offered by one means here, a free gift through Jesus Christ. He's shown us how bad and devastating and destructive Adam's sin is and continues to be. But he wants us to see how much greater the grace of God is in Christ. And he gives us here three contrasts to expose this and to draw this out and to overwhelm our hearts. Verse 15, first, notice this contrast Adam brings us into death, but Jesus Christ brings us into abundance of grace and life. Remember what we looked at a couple weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 5? He said, We stand in grace. I love, again, that imagery. It's so, it's so potent and powerful. We stand in grace, firmly anchored in grace. And to stand in grace is synonymous with standing in Christ. What's being said here is not, listen, not that you stand in grace only if you read your Bible a lot, only if you go to church a lot, only if you do good things can you get an abundance of grace. It's not at all what he's communicating to the people of God. No, it's saying this, that when you believed in Jesus, you got transferred from the reign of sin into the reign of grace, out of the reign of death and into the reign of abundant life. That's now, as a Christian, where you live if you're in Jesus Christ. That defines all of who you are. That is your absolute and total identity. It drives you, it encourages you, it refreshes you, it comforts you. You see, on your best days and worst days, you have this reality to stand in. When you struggle and fall, when you succeed and when you fail, when you dishonor Christ or you honor Christ, when you disobey Christ or obey Christ, you always live in the abundance of the grace of Jesus Christ. Adam brought us into death, but Jesus brought us into the, the super abounding, that's the sense of this word, it's a superlative sense, the greatest, most overwhelming amount of grace you could possibly know, so no matter how much you feel like a failure, no matter how much you struggle with fear and worry and doubt and anxiety, no matter how much you think you stand in something else, God calls you back to this beautiful, majestic reality. If you're in Christ today, you stand in the super abounding grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And the second contrast here is between the power of sin and the power of grace. You see, sin was demonstrated as being so overwhelmingly powerful that it affected all of creation. But what Paul points us to here is that it pales in comparison to the power of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. A free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. One sin led to judgment and inevitably to condemnation. Condemnation is simply an intensified understanding of the word judgment. You might say that one sin, one trespass led to this final, seemingly irreversible judgment. But amazingly, the grace gift following many trespasses brought justification. We know what this means. It means that we have been made just as if we never sinned and just as if we've always obeyed. It makes us right with God, at peace with God, reconciled to God because of the redemption of God. Think about what we deserve. We have Adam's guilt for his one trespass, which is more than enough to condemn us, according to the Scriptures. But here in verse 16, not only do we have Adam's trespass, we also have our own trespasses. We have our own guilt. We have our own shame. We don't just suffer for Adam's sin. We know. We know our own sin. We know that the sin is compounding. And so if we were to stand before God, not only would it be right for God to judge us for Adam's sin, for we were in Adam when he sinned, But it would be right for God to roll the highlight reel of our sin. And we would stand, as Paul has already made clear, without excuse. Knowing that we deserve wrath. We deserve eternal death, separation, and alienation from God. We would know for sure that we deserve it. We deserve it because of our many trespasses. But all of that, listen, is completely eclipsed by the power of the one man's grace gift. That one grace gift, listen, can undo all of the damage of Adam's sin and all of the damage of your sin in an instant, in a moment of time. Yes, for justification is the exact opposite of condemnation. Where once we stood condemned, now we stand right with God, justified, made righteous in His sight, This is the grace gift we have been given and in which we stand. This is where the Christian lives. And the final contrast he draws out here in verse 17. Notice what he says here. Through Adam, death reigned. Much more, those who receive the abundance of of grace and the free gift of righteousness, look at this, reign in life. You see, in Christ, you are no longer subject to the penalty of sin. You're no longer subject to the power of sin and to the punishment that you deserve. We're no longer subject to death. In fact, not only will you receive life, look at this, you will reign in life. The opposite, in other words, of the reign of death is the reign of Christians in life. And to reign in life means that as Christians, listen, we do what Adam was supposed to do. We triumph over sin, we triumph over death, and we triumph over the devil all because we are in Christ who did that on our behalf. You know, weakness in the Christian life, we know this, is the path to victory, Weakness is the way to victory in the Christian life. And the ultimate time, by the way, that you will experience, because we experience this throughout our life, when we are weak and broken and hurting, is the time that we know we must be desperate for God. And when we can't supply and be sufficient in ourselves. And that's when God shows up in power. But I want to encourage you with this. Listen, the ultimate time you will experience this reality, that weakness is the path to victory in the Christian life, is the day of your death. When you are at your weakness and you can struggle to draw in that last final breath with one faint heartbeat remaining, Jesus will come and meet you at that very moment of weakness. He will usher you home, and then He will raise you to life where you will rule and reign with Him. But you see, all of this is received through Christ. How is that possible? If you've been tracking the argument, here's what you must finally see, Christ, our representative. Verse 18 and 19, they show us and they teach us that there, as one, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. One act by one man has the power to change the destiny of every single individual. Paul's point is that we have a new representative who can undo the ruin of the first representative. While all were condemned in Adam's one act of disobedience, his, his unrighteousness was imputed to us, so to the many. And by here, the many, he's not preaching universalism here, to understand this in its context, is to understand that the many are all of those who find themselves in Christ, or all of those who find themselves in Adam. All who turn to Jesus by faith will have His one act of obedience, His righteousness imputed to our account. What is this one act of obedience? It is nothing less than the perfect life and substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. It is that package deal of Jesus Christ obeying the will of the Father, coming to this earth as a human being, a man to save men because it was a man who ruined men. And here Jesus comes, perfectly obedient to the law of God. Some people call this the act of obedience of Christ. He obeyed the law perfectly. But more than that, we see the, the passive obedience of Christ, where he, he willingly went to the cross. He obeyed the Father even unto death. He paid for the trespasses and sins of all of those who would put their faith in him alone. And in that moment of embracing the one man's act of obedience, the many are made righteous, are justified, and now reign in life with him. Verse 20 and 21, Paul goes back to the law and he essentially asks this question, so what what difference does the law make? It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, Listen, you want to know what the law does? You want to know why the law came into existence? Essentially, it came into existence to show men that their sin was actually trespass. Its absence, listen, doesn't make us innocent, and its presence doesn't make us acceptable. The presence of the law makes guilty people even more obviously guilty. It turns sin into trespass. See, while sin was still sin, the moment our sin is pointed out by a clear command of God, it is the moment we become aware of how sinful we truly are. And that awareness only increases over time as we knowingly violate the clear commands of God. You see, this is the effect of the law. It was never meant to save anyone only to point them to the only one that could save them. This is the the how much more of grace that Paul is speaking of here. For when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin reigned through death, where sin ruled and enslaved and dominated us, killing us every moment of every day, leading us toward the ultimate eternal death. Now, in Christ, listen, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. In Christ, we are now a new humanity where by grace we are set free from the power of sin, delivered from the penalty of sin, no longer under the dominion of sin. Instead, we are transferred out of the reign of death into the reign of Christ. Yes, sin still lingers. Yes, we still go to battle with sin, but it is no longer the power and authority it once was over our life. We may look at Adam as our representative and say, that's not fair. I'm being condemned for that guy's sin. But honestly, if we look at Adam, isn't it fair to say that he is actually the perfect representative for us? If we read through Romans 1 through 3, don't, don't we see that that's, that's us? That describes us, all of us, rebelled against God, rejected God, turned our, our back on God. Then we tried to cover it up. We tried to make ourselves look better in his sight with self-righteousness. We can look at that and say, that's us because Romans 1-3 through is really the outworking of what it means to be an Adam. You and I have proven with our daily lives that He was a good and right representative for us. Humanity stands before God as ruined sinners. And God reminds us that we don't want what's fair. We don't want what we truly deserve. And He offers to us something beautiful instead. But he says first, listen, you must be transferred out of the ruin of humanity in Adam to the reign of humanity in Christ. How is this done? This has been Paul's message. This is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is by faith to faith. It is faith alone in Christ alone, as we see here, all by grace alone. The call For you today, if you don't stand in Christ and instead you find yourself standing in Adam in the ruin of sin... Facing the reality of death, judicial, physical, spiritual, eternal, here's the call to your heart. It is turn to Jesus. Trust in a new and better representative. Let his obedience be transferred to your account. Let him make you righteous because you never could. Let him justify you, make you right with God because you never could. All you must do is turn to Jesus, repent of your sins, and grab hold of him by faith. If you want to talk about a representative that doesn't represent you accurately, let's talk about Jesus, the only perfect one, the one who didn't deserve death but took it in our place, and instead of guilt, death and condemnation, in Christ, listen, because of His free gift of abundant grace, because of Him, you stand justified, free from condemnation, abounding in life, awaiting the resurrection, reigning even now in the life of Christ, and you will forevermore with Him. The eternal destiny of every man lies in one of two persons, either in Adam or in Christ. And the free gift of abundant grace is so much greater than Adam's sin and ours combined. Of this Paul says we can be absolutely certain. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the grace that has been shown to us. We thank you, God, that this grace in Christ Jesus is so much greater than all of our sin. We thank you, God, that this grace is so much more powerful. We thank you that this grace is a free gift. It is offered to us. All we must do is receive it by faith, and that in and of itself is a gift from you, God, you are so worthy of our praise, and we pray now, Lord, that you would help our hearts to celebrate the grace of the gospel that is greater than all of our sin. Receive our praise now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.